So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And make the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but rather be filled with the Spirit, addressing each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word in order to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she might be holy and without blemish. In that same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for never one, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And that mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lord, just in our, our singing today, just a reminder of us to pay attention to you. That you are faithful. That you fit, complete all of your promises that you walk with us through the joys and the pains and the difficulties, and that we can trust you. And tonight even we trust you that you would speak to our hearts, to the Spirit, our teacher, that you would shape us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be in Ephesians 5, so find it. And... Um, We'll walk through at least a, at least a portion of it um, tonight. We are in uh, week three of this, uh, this series on men and women in God's story. And as I said before, each week builds on the previous one. So some things that we discovered, even in the very first week, are imperative for us to keep in mind as we begin to look at the, some of the more difficult passages like this week and then next week in particular. Um, and like this week, we're going to look at men and women in the home, and the next week will be um, men and women in the church. So each week lays a foundation in order for us to be able to help understand those harder sections. In summary so far, so we can remember at least a little bit, um, we saw men and women are created in God's image and are brought together for a shared mission. Um, second of all, we saw both in God relationships together, um, male and female together, best image God to our world. And recall that we talked about the fact that that involves both those who are single as well as those who are married. Um, Adam's problem was really not that he was single. His problem was that he was alone. And um, we were created for relationships. 
We also talked about why do we need male and female to image God in the world, and the answer was that they've, they're both similar. We talked about that, and then we also talked about the ways they're distinct and that their contributions, even, as, even in those first two chapters, particularly chapter 2, we discovered their contributions are distinct. And the man was given primary responsibility for the shared mission, not to do it, but he's responsible to make sure that, that they're going that way to guard God's regulations, which he failed to do, and to care for the well-being of his wife. And the woman was made as help, and we talked a lot about what that means, as helping in the way that God is our helper. We talked about the fact it's like a, like a, a military term that help comes um, when the military comes, without which it's a lost battle. And she brings and provides what is lacking. And we said that she, what she brings is essential and indispensable to God's mission. And then we talked last week um, about what did sin do to God's beautiful picture, his design that he had created. And we saw that it attacked and it corrupted our distinctiveness and it put men and women contrary to one another um, instead of being together in their mission. And it turned the, the man's primary responsibility into a dominating rule. Didn't make it that way, but that's what sin does when we let it rain in us. And what the woman was supposed to bring that's essential and indispensable, this, this place of being helper, it turned helper into a contender for control. And then what is God's redemptive purpose specifically in regards to this? It's to restore us. This is what the cross is supposed to do for us. To restore us to unity and oneness. Oneness is not the same as sameness. Oneness is what God intended in the very beginning as he takes these two distinct and similar uh, men and women and brings them together to create oneness. To restore how we are similar and also to restore how we are distinct through the redemption of the cross. For the purpose of both men and women that they can thrive in relationship with God and one another and um, to be freed, really, Again, to offer their distinct, God-ordained contributions and to once again fully image God's image to the world. That's a good thing. And the cross is supposed to bring us to that. And that's the battle, isn't it? Um, to have been free to do that, but then to see it happen in our world is where we're aiming for. Today we are specifically looking at marriage. What does a redeemed marriage look like for a couple as they're in call to embark on a mission together. Um, We're just doing Ephesians 5, but um, there's actually three passages that all um, tie in with this. Ephesians 5, basically 25 to 33, um, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 19, um, and then 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 25, and 3, 1 through 8. I don't have a lot of slides today because I had so much stuff here, and I was thought it's just going to be a mess up there, so they'll be pretty simple today, but um, the other passage is Colossians 3, 12 through 19, and then 1 Peter 2, and also 1 Peter 3 speak into it. Today we're going to basically stay um, with Ephesians 5, because it brings in those other ones pretty well. Uh, Paul is speaking here primarily and almost exclusively to husbands and wives, but take note, this is, um, so it's not about men and women in general. What he's saying to do is not about um, men and women in general, but to husbands and wives. But it's presented in the context of Christ and this church. And so it has something to say to all of us because that's actually the primary message in here. Um, the, from verse 22 through 33 of the 
200 plus words that are there, over half of them have to do with Christ and his church. So the aim here is to understand what is that there, and there's instruction, therefore, for all of us. Um, before I just teach straight up what I believe is clearly here, um, we all know this is one of those passages that gets lots of pushback and is, uh, is a centerpiece for lots of interesting discussion. Um, I think, and I could be wrong, but I think the pushback primarily happens in these texts about husbands being the head and the wife submitting because it's viewed as creating an inequality, um, a patriarchal hierarchy that puts the husband in charge and diminishes the wife uh, to second class. And there's, there's no doubt that this text has been used to do that, um, and it's been implied in ways that have done exactly that thing and have brought and still bring uh, great harm, and we talked about that earlier, with uh, with um, within churches, authoritarian, demanding husbands and wives treated as though they have no value. So if these texts are seen as supporting that, it's, there's good reason there's pushback about that. But number one, I don't think that that's what this text actually teaches. And two, um, even when you can teach something right, people do not always apply things in their lives in the right way. And they take things, even God's word, um, and, and they'll take it and misuse it um, to create uh, really bad things. Um, that's what sin does. <laughs> that's what we're told. That's what sin does. It takes God's good ways and it corrupts it, and that still happens today. So um, the problem when that happens is not God's word, and it's not the way he orders our relationships, but the problem with that is the hearts of men and that, that take God's word even and use it um, as, a, as a tool for exactly the opposite of what God intended. Um, I actually almost rewrote this whole thing yesterday because uh, I originally started putting this message together, and um, all I was hearing in my head was um, things, the objections I've read to this and different views, and people have asked me questions, and so I'm writing, putting this sermon. It was just this answering all these little, and there are so many details. There are just thousands of pages written on this, um, and I end up going, I've got this thing that just feels very negative and weighty, and we missed the whole point of the text, and so I crumpled it up and threw it away, um, and started over again. Um, and so I'm going to start, I do want to reference the basic approach, a uh, couple basic approaches in general that people have taken that would um, take them down a different interpretive path than I'm going to take you down tonight. Um, I'm not going to answer it all or give any, a lot of details about it, but I'm just going to mention the two ways. I'll take about five minutes to do that. Um, and if you have some specific questions in relation to those, this, we got those cards, write it down, and, and I will bring it and I'll answer those questions as best I can. I'll endeavor to do that next week. Um, and then I want to just really teach what I think is here, because there's the, 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 even the issue of Christ in this church, there's a, there's a wonderful text to instruct us and just walk through it. So I'm not going to answer all those questions, so if they're there, please write them down. I will go to them, but let me just give you a, a general um, picture of basically the, the two general ways people go when they interpret this text differently. So it's generally interpreted, not exclusively, but generally interpreted from differently from what I'll do tonight in two, two different ways, and they're mutually exclusive. They can't both be true. They're, they take two different tracks. The first track is to look at this passage. We start talking about, it's primarily about this issue of husbands being the head and wives submitting. Um, the first track is to say it doesn't, it doesn't mean what it sounds like. That would be the first track. Um, they would say that we have misread the text. We've, um, we've incorrectly defined the terms, in particular the word what it means to be a head. Um, 
They see head as defined in a way that actually removes the distinctions between the husband and wife. And here, like I said, there is, if you look up the word, uh, the Greek word for head is kephale, and you look up that word on the, on the Google, and you will have thousands of pages to read about it, um, going all sorts of different directions, and hear many, many, many sermons about it. Um, what does it mean here? Um, and also quite a bit written on what the a mutual submission, which comes from verse um, 24, um, actually verse 21, and that they also it does when it says hus- wives submit to the husbands, it doesn't sound isn't mean what it sounds like, because they would talk about um, mutual submission, um, that the passage does not teach that the wife is to submit in a special way to her husband, um, it's they're supposed to submit in the same way, and so um, it kind of removes that. As I said, there's thousands of pages written I've, uh, about it. I've probably read half of it. Um, going back and forth about the definitions here in Ephesians. So they define some things differently. The second approach to this, this passage would be a different interpretive approach than I take, and that's one I've actually talked about here in our church before. It means exactly what it sounds like, and what they think it sounds like is that the husband is in charge and the wife is not, and the wife just stays in the background. Um, but their response to it is that's what it sounds like because that's what it's saying. But the answer would be that was then... And this is now would be the phrase that might get used. Um, Paul was a product of his culture, and so it shows up here in this text. Um, Scott McKnight, who's an egalitarian scholar, um, has written some very great stuff, but he, this is what he says concerning um, this. He says, he who writes this story controls the glory. And the Bible is a book written by men, and so the idea here is we have to extract the culture, cultural and the gender bias from the text to see what it's actually trying to say and what it's pointing to. That would be this other approach to it. So what writers like, if you've read Sarah Bessie at all or Rachel Held Evans, um, they reference the fact that at the time, um, it was a highly patriarchal and hierarchical um, culture that was dominated by the Roman household codes, which made the husband rules and everybody else serves, which, which, would, which is true. And they would, um, they would say that the apostles advocated this system, this husband ruling system, not because God revealed it as a divine will for Christian homes, and this is a quote out of one of those books, but because it was the only stable and respectable system anyone knew at the time. And to do differently would have brought persecution on the church. So these writers or interpreters that go a different way would say that, um, would acknowledge that what Paul says is actually an improvement, because it is, um, it would have sounded good, but... Um, but that's still what's presented in a place like Ephesians 5 was not God's ultimate desire, but just a step in the direction. And today, no longer bound by those cultural and gender biases, um, we can design households that are marked by equality and shared roles. And I've shared about this before in the past, but I, I think it brings up lots of questions. Um, we are products of our culture as well, and to think that we actually have a better grid to see things through than Paul um, I have some deep questions about that. Um, and how are we just supposed to go about figuring out what was for then and what is for now? Um, what is true and what is really not true? Recall, I believe uh, I, I spent the first week, I said one of the interpretive approaches I take is what we call the presumption of obedience. In other words, if it says it, I'm, expecting, I'm going to expect to obey it unless there's something specifically in the text that directs me not to do so or gives it a different picture for our understanding. So um, 
I feel like we're bound by that. So God has brought an errant text to use and to let us know what it means to be his people and his community. And so um, that would be a very different approach. And I'm happy to answer any questions about that because that's a very common approach today and becoming more so within our church. Um, For today, I want to let the text to see if perhaps, perhaps it would speak clearly to us tonight um, for itself. So we're going to start here um, in Ephesians 5, and I'm going to primarily be in verses 25. This is a couple verses here. And because it's talking about mostly about Christ and the church, what we want to do is we want to look at what does it say about Christ and his church, because what it says about that informs what we learn about husbands and wives. So let's go with the part that's more clear first and which is actually the centerpiece of this text. And there's three statements that we discover. The first one, verse 23, is Christ is the head of the church. It just says that. Um, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It says that back in the verse beginning part. It says um, the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. So the first point there is Christ is the head of the church. As I said earlier, the Greek word for head is kephale, and it actually can get used in quite a number of different ways. Um, it can be used as your physical head, which is the, probably the most common way the word is used. Um, it can mean primary or that which is on top, since it's, a, it's the top part of our body. Um, it can convey a sense of having authority. It sometimes gets used that way, or having primary responsibility. It can mean chief or preeminent at times. Um, it can refer to source as in the place we get nourishment from comes through our head. It can mean summing up. So the head sums up the body and brings it together, the sense of um, this body metaphor, bringing the body together and bring it together. And it all depends on the context and where you go figuring out exactly what is it talking about. Um, obviously, Jesus is not talking about that Christ is the head, like the physical head. But um, So what does it mean? So here, what does it mean that Christ is head of the church? Well, you can look elsewhere because Paul t- uses the word a lot. So looking elsewhere, what does Paul say about it? And I think it starts becoming clear for us. Ephesians 1.22, it says this. He, the Father, put all things under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. And here in this place, it definitely has a, a sense of carrying a place of authority or leading. He has primary responsibility and the authority that goes with it. And that comes through as well in Colossians 2.10. It says, you have been filled in him... It's Jesus, who is the head, he's over, in that sense, of all rule and all authority. Colossians 1, Colossians 2 also use it. So Colossians 1, 17, 18 says this, talking about Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So again, we get this idea of preeminence or a primary lead, um, but the text has gone on here. It says, through Jesus, he's going to reconcile all things to himself. So taking that idea of reconciling all things to himself and this previous thing right here in Colossians 7, that he, he holds things together as, as the head. He brings all things together. We begin in, in, in addition to having this place of primary responsibility. It's He's bringing things together. He holds things together. As the head, um, it's just this idea of the head just summing up the rest of the body. And he even talks about the body in that section. And then Colossians 2.19 adds to that. He says, holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom he says the whole body is nourished 
and knit together. So there we get this other idea of head, which is we did was one of those definitions that, that it nourishes, that it knits us together, that it brings us together. And then back to Ephesians 4, 15, just a chapter before the one we're on today, Paul says, Speak, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ. And this idea that Christ as 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 our whose primary responsibility, who's who's over us, but his purpose, and, and he's bringing us together. He's pulling us together. He's, he's nourishing us. He's knitting us together as his body. As, so he's the head. We are the body, and he brings them together. Paul does not describe Jesus with the typical works, words for, in Greek for ruler. He doesn't say Jesus. He doesn't use that word here. Um, and I think it's because the association with those is all negative. It was all dominating um, oppressive rulers. And so Paul chooses through the Spirit to use this, this word for kafali, which is much, much deeper, has a lot more to it than that. And these dominating oppressive people that they would have looked at as rulers is just not Jesus. So I think that Paul uses the word head and he conveys that Jesus holds a place of primary responsibility and has been given that role, it tells us by the Father, and what does the head do? He is bringing all things, particularly us, his body, together into oneness, into unity. Which, in the, remember chapter 2, what was the whole purpose? To bring us together for oneness, for both as himself and with one another. The Father gave him the responsibility. Paul often uses this, this body metaphor, and it gets referenced, as I said, in, at the end of chapter 5, verse 30. It tells us that we are members of his body. And so Christ has responsibility and authority as head for the purpose of bringing together us in order to fulfill our mission as one body. Which, interesting, doesn't that sound familiar to Adam's unique contribution? To take the primary responsibility to bring Adam and Eve together to fulfill their mission. And I believe that's the idea here of Christ being our head here. The second statement that we get about Christ in the church from verse 24, it talks about the church is subjected to Christ. The second is that the church submits to its head, which is Christ. So Christ is the head of the church, and this church submits to his head, who is Christ. The word submit is unpopular in the world. It's unpopular with all of us because this little piece of us that wants to be autonomous does not want to do that. Um, and we're all in places we've been where it's easy to, and it's delightful too, and we've all been in places where it's hard to, um, especially when things are, are just messed up. It, the word gets, uh, m- m- I think, misrepresentative, mis- misrepresented. Um, we think of like mix, mixed martial arts. You get the guy in the arm bar, and you just keep going until it almost breaks, and then they tap out, and that's submitting. Um, I've been in that spot. Um, and they submit is often understood in this context of the one authority forcing submission and it's oppressive. That is not what this word is, means here at all. Um, submit, the word is used of ordered relationships in society. And it's to voluntarily choose to place under or to yield or to defer. So I, I choose to place myself underneath somebody else and to defer to them to yield. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane does what? places himself under the Father's will. He takes his human will and places it underneath the Father's will and he submits to it. Because Jesus holds primary responsibility and authority 
and he is the one who will bring us to oneness and bring us together, we choose to bring ourselves under his headship, to make ourselves available to carry out the mission that he leads us in. Here Jesus is as our head. He says, I've got this mission. It's this, it's this awesome mission, and I'm going to press forward, and I'm going to take us that way, and he invites us to submit to his lead in that and to come underneath him so that he can carry it out through us. And we do it gladly, joyfully, and wholeheartedly. And we do. We're here because of that. We're here because we, we care about that. And we want to follow him in that. And we desire to do it in all things. It says to submit to him in all things. We willingly submit because that's what we're called to do. It honors the one who holds responsibility. And we submit to him because it brings us life, doesn't it? It brings us on the path that he's called us to. So, Christ is the head of his church. The church submits to his head. And in verse 25, Christ loves his bride. It says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In verse 27, that he might, some verses say, he might present her in all of her glory. So the question is, how much, how much does Jesus love us? How much does he love us? It's a question. Philippians tells us that he took the form of a servant, servant and he became obedient to the point of death so that you and I could have life again. He left the riches of heaven and became poor for our sake so that we could have all the riches of heaven at our disposal. It says that he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf so that we could become clothed in the righteousness of God. So how much does he love us? Um, we get around the table every single week and remember how much he loves us. That's why we're here. The one who is our head, the one we submit to, loves us with an everlasting, sacrificial love. So before we go on, um, I, Elizabeth, I appreciate your testimony, um, that even when things are hard, that we trust him that he's good. Um, do we trust Jesus because of his love for us as our head to follow him in his mission? Is really the question here. He invites us to join him, and it's not always easy, and it's confusing, and it doesn't always go well. And yet, do we trust him as our head because of his great love and his sacrifice to us to submit to that and say yes to him? Have we willfully and wholeheartedly placed ourselves under his lead and letting him lead us into every area of life that he calls us to? And I think our, our answer is, oh, yeah, we want to do that, right? We struggle to, and we get around the table, and he re, reorients our hearts to do that again, week by week by week by week. Because as our head, he's good. And he's leading us, and he loves us, and just calls us to submit ourselves to him as he carries that out in us. So, Christ is our head, the church submits to its head, and Christ, Christ desperately loves his bride, which is you and I. So what does that say about husbands and wives? That's the whole context here. Paul wants us to understand what does he say about Christ and the church that informs our understanding of what he says about husbands and wives. So you walk through this note that we are, we're talking about ways that we relate to each other. This is not about um, who does the dishes and who's the one who works and who's the one who stays home and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's, those are household tasks. You guys just figure them out. You know, every, every household is going to figure those things out differently. That's, that's not what this is about at all. It's about relationship. So three things. Just, we just had it, the three parallel things. Number one, the husband, it says here, is the head of the wife. It says in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as or in the same way 
that Christ is the head of the church. So we look back at what we just discovered. What we discovered, it, it, we asked the question, how does Christ, what does it mean that Christ is our head? And husbands are the head in the same way. So does it mean that the husband is number one, or the boss, or who's in charge, and as this often gets spoken of here? No, we just saw what it means. I mean, that, that's not the, the picture we get of Jesus, even though he could definitely do that if he chose to. Puts husbands right back into Genesis 1 and 2, what our unique contribution is to, to point the way. The husbands hold primary responsibilities, we said last week, to point towards the mission and to care for the well-being of his wife. And as with Jesus and as head, the husband is charged with the responsibility to move the husband and wife to oneness. Because that was the goal, right? Whenever uh, I do weddings, one of the things I always say is, and as soon as you say those vows, something happens. And it's before you, got, before you said them, you were two people. You say them, God says you're one. And it just happens. There's something that happens. And then you spend, all of us who are married know this, the rest of your life trying to figure out what, what does that look like and how do we get there? But it says that you're one. And the husband has the primary responsibility, he's charged the responsibility to move the husband and wife towards oneness. And as I said about Jesus, to bring them together as God first intended. And again, to bring them to oneness, not sameness. By the way, I, I don't know about your home, but my wife thinks about that often more than I do. Um, and it's, that's, a, that's a criticism of me. We're supposed to, as husbands, supposed to be the ones who are always pointing that way and pressing towards that. Do both share in the work? The answer is yes. But the husband as head is responsible to be point, always calling and says, this is where we're going, this is where we're going, this is where we're going. And to bring it together. She'll lead the way in that. By the way, if that still doesn't sound good to you, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3, Jesus knows exactly what it's about. He says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ, it says, is God the Father. And so having a head is not a bad thing. Um, lived out like Christ does, it brings brings together, it pulls things together, it brings unity, and it keeps us going towards what God originally intended. Number two, the second parallel is the wife submits to her husband. Verse 22 and 24 it just says it. Wives be subject. Um, the RSV uses the word subject, the same word for submit, to your own husbands, by the way, not to other husbands. It's, you don't have to worry about that. As to the Lord. So that's qualified by that. But as the church is subject to Christ, so in the same way, also wives ought to be there to their husbands and everything. So the husband has primary responsibility to point to the mission, to bring them together, united into oneness. And the wife, as we saw in Genesis 2, is the helper, as God is the helper, to bring what it lacks so it can actually happen. So she voluntarily, according to Paul here, yields to her husband as one who holds primary responsibility. To submit there is really what it means is to embrace your calling and your contribution as helper. That's what it is. To submit is to embrace your contribution as helper, and helper meaning all that we looked at um, the other week about what that means. Some say that Ephesians 5.21, which is a great verse, it says that 
Um, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It actually says, uh, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And it talks about the gathered church that we are singing together in, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together, um, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, that's as a, as a church, out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Um, so Ephesians 5.21, some will say that this means that we're all supposed to submit to each other. Um, and that would actually be true. Um, that is actually what happens when God's people in his community are filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Philippians tells us that we think of others better than ourselves. Um, and it gets evidence when we worship in unity together um, and in our eagerness to defer to one another in the body of Christ. That's, that's a healthy body. When we're looking at ways to sacrifice towards each other, to defer to one another, to submit to each other. Those are all evidence of a healthy church body. But we're also told within the church body, we looked at this a number of weeks ago, that while submitting to one another, Hebrews tells us that what are we supposed to do? We submit to our elders, right? So there is a way that we submit to each other that's different than the way we submit to our elders because that's a different category. It's a different place. So even elders who submit to one another, we're called to do that too. But the church body then submits to the elders. So there's a general submitting to one another, but there's also a special submitting to our leaders. And I think that's the same idea here in the home. We are filled with the Spirit to submit to one another. But there's a special submitting here of the wife to the husband that needs to happen for them to experience what God designed for them, oneness. Because the, the relationship needs the wife's contribution, the submitted contribution of embracing her place as helper to make these things happen. So what does that look like? Well, I can't totally answer that, but... Um, the way you respond as a wife, as a woman, to Christ's leadership and his love, that informs how you respond to your husband. That's what's saying here. The way you respond, you're supposed to respond to Christ's leadership and his love, that informs how you respond to your husband. So the question is, how do I submit to Jesus? What does that look like, submitting to Jesus, and then to carry that into um, submitting to your husband? So with the husband as head, what do the scriptures say? Submit to your husband. And by the way, just I, I hope it's without even having to say it, we're not talking about submitting to, to sin. Um, it says, ask to the Lord, and there's another part that says, um, it talks about that, I think it's in either, I think it's a Peter passage. But um, if, a, if a husband is, is, is asking you to go in a, a direction that violates God's commands, the submission always comes to God first. And so it's not about that at all. It doesn't mean submitting to abuse ever. It doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It says to submit as to the Lord. So if submitting puts you in conflict with submitting to Christ, um, Jesus wins every single time. Interesting, there's only a couple verses here about wives submitting, which ends up getting all the conversation. But there's a lot of verses about the husband's part. Who is the head? And how does it show up? How does being the head show up? Well, he tells us, just as Christ loves his bride, verse 25, 28, and 33 says that the husband is to love his bride. So we had that the husband is the head of the wife, the wife submits to her husband, and the husband loves his bride. It says, husbands, love your wives in the same way as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he goes on these verses about how husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. I I always got confused about that one because I, mean, I care about myself. I'm not, I'm not real thrilled about my body, actually. I've always wanted to be, but I'm just not. Um, 
But um, he uses this. It's the body metaphor. Christ who has us, his body, as his head cares for his body because he loves it. It's part of him. And so, so too, a husband, he uses the same kind of idea. Remember Genesis 2, there to be one flesh. The husband is the head as Christ is the head of the church's body. He has primary responsibility to move them, to call them towards oneness always, over and over again. When he cares for his wife, he is caring for himself as well, leading them to live what it looks like to be one and to be one flesh. Here, when Paul lays out the implications of being a head, he doesn't talk about ruling. He doesn't say anything about making all the decisions. He actually calls the husbands to love like Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. It's easy to rule. It's easy to make decisions. Loving like Christ is costly, and it's the better thing. Jesus shows what this is like. He is the bar for husbands about how we measure our love for our wives. Scripture said he did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In the face of dying on the cross and betrayal and abandonment of friends, Jesus takes a bowl instead and he, he washes their feet. Husbands, to me, to you, you're responsible to love sacrificially and to die to yourself. Anybody who's been married know that married knows dying to yourself is the first thing that begins to start happening. Um, it has to. Of course, like general submitting, all believers are to submit to each other. It needs to happen in the home as well, to serve and to love. And yes, but there are husbands, as husbands, um, although we all love each other sacrificially, as husbands, we're to do it in a special way. To mainly always lead the way in sacrificial love. Take the lead in serving. Take the lead in putting your wife first always. Take the lead in sacrificial love, which is hard. But it's not sacrificial if it doesn't cost anything. Um, so, for example, when you come home and you are done, you never think we all know what that means. Wives know the same thing. Um, that's the time to begin. That's when loving sacrificially begins. Can we ever say, I've loved enough? I have loved sacrificially enough. And the answer is we don't even get close to ever being in danger of that. Actually, this had been pretty radical calling in the time of Paul. In that time of their idea of head did not sacrifice. If you were a head, if you were like the general or a Caesar or an emperor, then everybody else is expected to go out in front and die for you in order to protect the head. And Paul completely reverses that. He says, as the head, you're the one to be in front. You're the one to die. You're the one to love and be sacrificial. It completely reverses it. To sacrifice for yourself for the body, which in this case... It's your wife. God's calling to husbands is to take um, Christ-like servant leadership in the home. You are responsible, I am responsible, to bring it together as the head. Responsibility falls on us to cherish first, to lead first, to listen first, to die first, and second, third, and fourth. Last note here, just as husbands are not to rule and dominate, because that's not being the head. Um, it's also not loving for have husbands just to check out. I think that's more common today than it has been before. Becoming passive in their leading. It's interesting how commercials, I don't know if commercials, you just watch a few commercials and some TV programs, um, and it's dominated by passive, clueless husbands. And you know why? Because there's tons of examples of it. We all know it. It's just It's everywhere. And that is not what taking responsibility looks like, and that is not what loving like Christ looks like as well. 
As a matter of fact, it's just being controlling, but in a very different way, um, interesting enough. So husbands, we're to love like Christ. As you consider these instructions, these are kind of really, they're really invitations, I believe, that Paul gives us to wholeness. As we consider what the relationship between us and the Lord looks like first, with ordered relationships and submission and sacrifice and a common mission, we just think about our relationship with Christ in this regard as our head and submitting to him and being joined in his mission and, and knowing his love. Is that good news to us? I think we'd say yes. It's good. It is awesome news to have Christ in that place in my life and to have him love me that way and to submit to him just brings life. It is good news that Jesus is our head. It is good news how much he loves us. It is life-giving when we freely choose to submit to him. As I said, I think we would all say that that is really good news for us. But that is also the pattern that he's calling husbands and wives to. And in those, in those great moments when we actually do that, um, when we actually embrace that as husbands and wives, um, and we actually imitate that pattern, those, those maybe few times that that happens, it's actually a really good thing. And there's life there. And there's wholeness and there's oneness. I don't think the passage could be more clear. What he lays out here is actually, it's not complicated at all. It's actually pretty clear. Um, is it hard? It's really hard. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it costly? It is incredibly costly. But it's not complicated. I'd like to quote, close with a, this quote from Kathy Keller um, out of the book Meaning of Marriage. She actually writes a chapter on this, um, this little section of the word here. It's a little bit long, but I just want to read this, what she says. By the time Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the relationship of Jesus to the church had been made the model for that of a husband and wife. We, the church, submit to Christ in everything, and the peril of wife submitting everything to her husband is no longer daunting since we know what kind of behavior the husband has been called to imitate. To what role must he submit? To that of the Savior, a servant leader who uses his authority and his power to express a love that doesn't even stop at dying for the beloved. In Jesus, we see all the authoritarianism of authority laid to rest and all the humility of submission glorified. Rather than demeaning Christ, his submission leads to his ultimate glorification, where God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. By analogy, does that mean that the husband is grooming his wife in her submission to him to be lifted up in glory above himself, I'm, she says, I don't know. But I do know that if a wife's role in relationship to her husband is analogous to the church's submission to Christ, then we have nothing to fear. Both men and women get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority and Jesus in his sacrificial submission. By embracing our gender roles and operating within them, we are able to demonstrate to the world concepts that are so counterintuitive as to be completely unintelligible unless they are lived out by men and women in Christian marriages. One of the things we, we talk about at weddings here is that it's way more about way more than the people getting married. It's about imaging um, something about the character and nature of God in mission to the world. God gave men and women distinct contributions in order that in unity to image God more fully to the world. Our marriage and the husband and wife 
and their distinct roles and contributions lived out in a parallel way to the relation of Christ to the church demonstrates something glorious of the character and nature of God to the world. So when you follow God's design in your marriage, you display the glory of what God has done for his people and how his people respond to his grace. The wife's submission is never just about her submission. It's also about demonstrating the church's willingness to follow Jesus. The husband's love is never just about his love. It is also about showing the sacrificial love of Jesus for his people. So your marriage, my marriage, is much bigger than you think. And you have an opportunity to announce the gospel with your lives as no one else can do. So is it any wonder that the enemy attacks? As we looked at last week, attacks marriages and attacks families. Remember we said the enemy does not want the image of God seen in the world. And so he attacks us. And he brings disruption and disorder to the way God designed us to relate because he does not want God reflected um, in our homes. Cameron, if you could bring the uh, worship team um, back up front again. The table is important every week, but it is, it is sig- uniquely significant over the course of these five weeks in this series because we just got to keep coming back to him over and over again because this is where the enemy attacks and to get our minds and our eyes on him to help be reshaped. If you haven't been here before with communion, if you know Jesus, the table is open and we break the bread off and just dip it in the cup. The table reminds us that Jesus is the center In terms of the gospel message, he is the hero. In terms of world history, he is the the center point. And in terms of the redemptive plan of God, Jesus is the means by which redemption comes to us. And this table before us tonight is a testimony to God's love shown perfectly in Christ. As we gather together around the bread and the cup, I'd encourage us to recommit ourselves once again to loving one another, as a community of faith, as a community for which uh, he calls us his bride. And on that day, Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he took a towel and he washed the disciples' feet, giving us an example that we should do to others as he has done to us. On that day, he gave us this table, this meal, and that now on this day, tonight, as we gather, we who eat this bread and drink this cup proclaim his sacrifice, and we become partakers his resurrection. Lord, thank you for the bread and the cup, all that they mean, that's all that's gathered up in just those two simple elements, all given to us to make us um, make us renewed and freed and redeemed image bears again. So we give you thanks as we gather in Jesus' name. Amen.